Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest-running hiking podcast, downloaded over half a million times in over 145 countries, and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. I'm your host, Tim Savage, and always, I'm joined by my co-host, Joel Savage. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first podcast for 2021. In today's episode, episode 173, we are discussing hiking with animals from a uniquely Australian perspective, and that will include a couple of short interviews that we've done on the trail previously on this topic. Now, before we get into today's episode, if you'd like to help support this podcast, there's a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, subscribe to your podcast host of choice, so it's available as soon as it's published. And if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review on your podcast listening service. Another way you can support us, if you like what we do, is go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the Support Us page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. Now, the human connection with animals is timeless. First as food, then as working partners that carry our loads, helping us hunt or managing or protecting our herds. And this eventually at some point evolved into companion animals. Animals have become an integral part of our lives in one way or another, so it's not surprising that many of us want to include them in our hiking activities. Now, while taking domestic animals on hikes is much more common in the USA, this is starting to become more common in Australia. So in today's episode, we look at the options for taking animals on the trail from an Australian perspective uh, as a companion or to help us in our endeavours. Now, the first thing we're going to talk about is as pack animals. Now, one of the most obvious options for including animals in our hiking endeavours is as a pack animal. Now, pack animals include horses, donkeys, and to a lesser extent, mules, llamas, alpacas, and camels, and they provide an option for load carrying that hikers just can't manage. Taking pack animals, or any animal of that matter, with you on a hike creates a whole set of considerations, including specific food and first aid requirements for your animals. There are a number of national and state parks throughout Australia that will allow horses However, if you're planning on taking a pack animal with you, then you should check with each individual park about the specific requirements and limitations. While horses are considered in most states and territory management plans, donkeys, mules, llamas, alpacas and camels really aren't specifically mentioned. Uh, And I'll talk about that briefly when we talk about state legislation in a moment. And if you're looking at taking any sort of pack animal, no matter what the type, into one of the parks or reserves, it's probably best to talk to the park management uh, to see where they sit in the scheme of things, to find out if they're allowed. Now, we're just going to play you a short segment of podcast episode 150, where we talked to Liz Byron about hiking with donkeys, and we'll just look at some of the key aspects of uh, what was happening with donkeys and how she managed to deal with them on the trail. So have a listen and see what you think. Liz, thank you for taking the time to talk with Australian Hiker. 
You're welcome. And I'm delighted to be here. From a point of view of planning, uh, so tell us a bit, a bit about the planning for this trip. Where did that start and what did that look like? Well, the planning began with the donkeys because I knew I had plenty of outdoor experience. I knew, you know, I, I knew about, I knew how to live outdoors. I had a lot of experience. But what I had no experience of was large animals of any sort, not cows, not horses, not donkeys. And so what I needed to do was, well, I firstly had to find my donkeys. Then I had to get to know them and get to feel confident. I wanted to feel confident uh, before I set out um, with two donkeys. That was so the whole the planning for four and I figured on four years. Yeah, I reckon four years would be enough time to to be ready. Okay, um, and I mean you 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 were saying that most of your other hiking in the past had been done with you know with family uh, and and particularly you mentioned we are having to having to, to cater for younger children and, and and often you're carrying their gear when they're particularly young um, but how did actually um, having two two pack animals with you impact on that did that change your planning process oh entirely I mean it's just entirely it was a, a different type of travel it was um, I mean in one way, it was the same in the sense of what I was always looking for was was lightweight, you know, everything to be lightweight because yep. I wanted to minimise um, the amount the donkeys carried. Uh, the donkeys could carry a maximum, I determined, um, 50 kilos would be the absolute outside for each of them. Yep. And the pack saddles, they were very good pack saddles, but uh, unfortunately quite heavy. They were nearly 10 kilo, kilos each. So we come back to 40 kilos. So I still thought that was a bit much. So I really tried to keep their weight on each donkey to 35 kilos to what I could carry. Yeah. But with that, I could, with that, that weight, I could go without picking up supplies for three to four weeks. That's a that's a pretty pretty good length of run without having to resupply. Uh, I, th I think that's often, particularly when you're when you're travelling as an as a person and having to carry everything. Uh, really, the limit is probably about ten days for most people. So three to four that's weeks right. is is pretty good. Yes, yeah, and that's what I found. That was what was so exciting for me. So not only do I not have to actually carry it, but I could be out there for longer. And then, and another difference of this is a bit of a digression, but another difference about having pack animals is that they can't, you know, climb fences as necessary as, as we can as bushwalkers when we're on, on foot. You've always got to find an opening. You can't just, you know, magically get over fences. Um, so there, there, are, there are lots of little things that crop up when you're, when you're walking with animals. All right. So, what about what about food for donkeys? I mean, is, you know, are donkeys basically horses, or they have they do they have different food requirements? Very different from horses in their food requirements. In fact, you know, horses thrive on a grassy paddock. <laughs> donkeys do not thrive on a grassy paddock. But donkeys are closer to goats. They go a little bit of this and a little bit of that, according to what they what they actually need. Listening to the way you're talking about the donkeys and in, in talking to you and setting up this interview, they definitely do seem to be a you know while they're an equine 
uh, animal, they definitely seem to have their own personalities. So tell us a bit about what it's like to actually walk with donkeys. What, what's, what, do, what do you do to convince them to walk with you and, and what's the relationship like with them? Well, I guess it's sort of like round the other way. If you've got the relationship, they don't need any convincing. So it's walking with them is, they've just got this beautiful energy, that's all I can say. Um, and, and, and sometimes frustrating because donkeys, for me, uh, all, over the, all over the world from what I read, a donkey's pace is around four kilometres an hour. My two donkeys, neither of them met that. <laughs> I liked to walk at around my pace, which is by naturally around six or seven kilometres an hour. I've got quite a fast walking pace. So, and as someone pointed out, um, Charlie and I even kind of got the same length leg. Yeah. <laughs> Both got long, skinny legs, whereas Grace was much more solid, shorter legs, and did not like to walk very fast at all. And we'd much rather walk at around three kilometres an hour. So we had some struggles over that. Now, as I mentioned, this is a that segment of podcast we just listened to was a much broader, much longer episode, which you can listen to the full episode in episode 150. But the key takeaways from the things we listened to today's short segment was really it was getting to know the donkeys uh, and developing a relationship with them. And what probably the key thing that came out of this from Liz's perspective was that it was a partnership. Uh, that she was working with the animals, with, in this case, the donkeys. It's not just a matter of saying, do this, do that. Um, otherwise, it doesn't sound like it would have worked. Uh, one of the key things she uh, she decided in taking her donkeys on the trail was it allowed her to go three to four weeks between resupplies. And in doing the Bicentennial National Trail, which was the trail that she was doing, um, being able to go for such long periods without having to top up on food made things a lot easier without having to stop in and getting someone to drop food off to her or to drop into towns. The donkeys in this case to the start of the trail is another another logistical issue. Um, you're generally not going to have to walk them for where you're going. So uh, a horse float or, or a, uh, of some sort uh, to get them to the location is going to be an added expense. Uh, another thing she mentioned, and I hadn't really thought about this until um, uh, I talked to Liz on this aspect, was getting them through fences. As hikers, we have the ability to go through fences or over fences. We can just take our pack off if need be, throw it over the top, uh, push the wire apart and get through. Or in some instances, you'll have gates and fences that are designed to allow walkers to act- and cyclists, for that matter, to get through. In the case of pack animals, you really are going to need a gate or a gap in the fence somewhere to actually get them through. It's starting to get really complicated, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, Liz also mentioned the need to have special gear for donkeys. Uh, and in this case here, she was lucky enough to be able to buy uh, a purpose-built set of um, pack saddles that were made for donkeys um, without having to get them specially made. Um, certainly everything seems to be geared around for horses. Um, and I think 
it's it's one thing you tend to not think about so much, but the Bicentennial National Trail is a multi-purpose trail. It's designed for hikers, for horse riders, or donkeys for that matter, and cyclists. Um, and really it was it was built for horses, if you like, and that means every thought about what people do or how they go hiking or camping is geared around horses. Um, we've done uh, book reviews and podcasts in the past uh, where uh, well-known Australian adventurers have taken camel tracks. Uh, and again, that's a whole different um, uh, idea about things you need to consider. Um, alpacas and llamas, not so common in Australia uh, as pack animals, but certainly they are in the USA. But these are all options that you can consider and take with you. Um, but as Lyd has made very clear, it's uh, an additional logistical um, consideration before you start the trip in developing that relationship, particularly if you aren't used to dealing with large animals. Uh, and then the considerations about their equipment, their food requirements, uh, depending on what sort of animals you're going to take. So certainly from a pack animal perspective, there are lots of pros, but there are also lots of downsides as well. Yeah, and I think for me the thing that comes out of that is that it's it's probably something you might do on a really, really, really short trip or a really, really long trip. So, you know, there's a lot involved. Um, the, the shorter the trip, I guess, the uh, the less logistics involved. Um, but certainly if it's a, a long trip, in, you need that support and you need uh, that capability to carry a lot of stuff, then, you know, it starts to become worthwhile. Um, I think, you know, the, the obvious thing is if you're doing this, you've really got to love those animals. You know, they're with you day and night. <laughs> And in some respects, that's not a bad thing. And, and that leads us on to uh, the next type of animal, and we're talking about companion animals. So these are animals that aren't going to be carrying a load or share, carrying the load for you. Um, these are animals you're taking purely for companionship and for company. And we really tend to be talking about dogs here. Now, there's nothing saying you can't take a, another style or another type of animal with you. But from an Australian perspective, cats really are a no-go in, in national parks and most state parks. Uh, if they go wild, they're considered a pest. Yeah, and I think if they were anything like our cats were, you'd spend the whole time carrying them. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 uh, the leash wouldn't be used very much. It'd just be in your pocket somewhere. <laughs> And I do have uh, work colleagues that do walk their cats. Um, but, yeah, you are doing a lot of carrying in that case. So, um, you know, having a cat you can uh, put into your pack uh, or physically carry on your shoulder, you want a small cat. You don't want a huge thing that weighs, weighs many kilos. So we're really talking dogs here. Um, and um, we've developed a, a very strong relationship with dogs uh, for quite a long period um, but in most cases, particularly for national parks, as a general rule, dogs aren't allowed. Now, there are some exceptions, and again, we'll talk about state legislation in a moment, um, but the dogs that are allowed in pretty much every park and reserve in Australia are assistance animals. Uh, and these are animals that are designed as um, what they class, I don't know if they still the correct term, seeing eye dogs, or um, 
uh, or animals that have been designated by uh, the state authority as being a designated assistance animal, uh, and again, that, that typically is dogs, they are allowed into parks. Yeah, and assistance for all sorts of different reasons because um, it might be a physical support that they're providing, but also um, uh, dogs that uh, provide um, mental and companionship to uh, people can also be classified, I think, uh, maybe I'm not quite right here, but I understand that they can be classified as assistance animals as well. Now, some states and territories, and that's pretty limited here, do actually allow for dogs to be used for hunting. Uh, and usually this is tends to be in state reserves rather than national parks. But again, we'll talk about that in a moment. Caged birds, probably not so common from a hiking perspective. Um, but again, with a lot of parks, they'll actually ban caged birds because they're seen as a potentially transferring disease to native populations. So um, while you are unlikely to be carrying a bird as a hiker, you could be carrying them if you're traveling with a, a caravan or a vehicle and staying in national parks. This next interview we're going to listen to is a hiker uh, that we re recorded an interview with in 2019 um, who was taking her dog on the human hovel track. Thanks for talking to us, Sarah. You're welcome. Okay, so why are you doing the human hovel track and why do you have a dog with you? I'm doing the human hovel track because I've wanted to do some longer distance hiking for quite a long time and I really wanted uh, to do some with my dog Bella, but in Australia there is hardly any long distance hiking that you can do any sections on with a dog it's really hard to find um, but there are some sections on the human hovel track that we can do obviously we can't go through uh, national park or anything like that but we're going to just um, do some sections and we've got some pick up and drop off points so that we are able to do some little days together and just have a great time on trail and camping together. I must admit, it's a, it's a, in the States, hiking with dogs is, is a lot more common than it is here. And I think partly because uh, in America, you ha do have some national parks that allow dogs, but a lot of them don't. Here in Australia, national parks are a no-go zone for, for dogs in any state. But I think with the human hovel uh, track, because there's a lot of state forests, and I think it was you saying that state forests allow dogs all through them? Correct, yeah. Every state forest you can have um, dogs for hiking and camping in. So, yeah, a lot of the um, track is, has a lot of state forests, so it worked out well for us. <laughs> so I think, you know, this is not a bad track. If you do want to go hiking with your dog, it's probably not a bad thing. Uh, but also, I think you were saying you're a vet as well? Yeah, correct, so yeah. <laughs> having a vet to be able to look after your dog is, is not a bad thing. And uh, Sarah was saying that uh, Bella's carrying a small pack and she's yep. got, got, got uh, her own little boots as well yep uh, and we've got a first aid kit for me and a first aid kit for Bella so <laughs> uh, and Bella's 10 years old you were saying yeah she's just turned 10 although she's a very young 10 she doesn't act like it at all <laughs> Uh, and Sarah was saying that she lets uh, Bella set the pace, so it's not as if she's dragging dragging Bella along and forcing her, so Bella's, yeah, Bella's sort of setting the pace, which yeah. is good. I, want it, I only want it to be fun for both of us. If she's not having fun, there's no point us being out here, so we can only do what she can do, and if at any stage she doesn't seem like she's enjoying herself, then we just stop. <laughs> okay, so... How have you found the track so far? You, now, you said you started at um, 
Fitzpatrick Trackhead? Correct, yeah. Um, so you've been going for two days so Correct, far? Correct, yeah. So how have you found it, So uh, 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 the hiking and the, the conditions and the environment? It's been harder than I expected. <laughs> um, the first day we didn't find too bad. It was pretty steep up that um, Mount Wee Jasper, but it was fun. We had a good time um, and got to the, the campsite there um, at Logbridge, Logbridge Campsite before it was you know, too late and had a, had a good rest and everything like that. But yesterday um, the terrain was very, very tricky. Um, lots and lots of um, uh, bits of trail that we had to sort of do scrambles over or under, depending on if it was me or Bella. <laughs> um, we, uh, I had a few falls. Bella got some stinging nettles on her paws before I could spot them and put her little boots on for her. Um, so, yeah, by the time we got to the campsite here, we were a little bit feeling a bit sore and sorry. <laughs> and we were actually planning to hike a little bit longer than we did yesterday, but I made the decision to stop earlier because I didn't think it was going to be fun for both of us to be pushing it on um, and into later into the day. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so what time did you get into camp yesterday? Um, I think it was about four o'clock. Yeah, that's yeah. not too bad. We, we got in here around about six, uh, and the next campsite, uh, next designated campsite at least, is about another seven and a half kilometres. So mm. we were also hoping to get to that campsite as well. But the way the terrain is, it's very slow going in some sections. Um, you know, if it was flat, easy trail, doable. Uh, but yeah, there was no way. I think it would probably take about two and a half hours at least to get to the next campsite so yeah, uh, yeah we, we made the same decision as well okay so you're planning on doing part of the track or all of the track or uh little sections so th there was never going to be any way we could do the whole part from start to finish with the dog um but there are some areas where we're planning to like um do alternate tracks where we can so so it'd be mean a lot more dirt country road walking yeah. um uh so doing as much as we can but again i don't have any fixed plans because i'm just going to wait and see how both of us go if at any point bella seems like she's not having fun or she gets sore or anything then we can just stop earlier so we're going to do as much as we can in sections as far as we can to albury <laughs> okay that's a good yeah. good attitude to have with dog and person or with just people in general so yeah okay thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us Sarah. you're welcome thank you Okay, so we hope you enjoyed that little short interview. Um, now, the key things for me, very much like the interview we did with Liz Byron on pack animals, um, it really comes down to putting your dog or your, your animal first, uh, letting them set the pace. Um, you know, they're there. If you're taking a companion animal with you, they're there to enjoy the experience and to be with you, not to sit there, collapse at the end of each day and thinking, I really don't want to do this. Oh, my God, they're going to make me do that again tomorrow. <laughs> and, we, yeah, we, we have done interviews with um, uh, Tangles and Tail, Lucy Barnard and, and her dog Wombat. Um, and, yeah, it's been interesting listening to her over the last couple of years where on some days Wombat, you know, he just didn't feel like walking and saying enough's enough. Uh, where there are other days he's quite happy to just keep, just keep on going. So uh, animals like humans have their good days and their bad days. They've also got their own personalities. So, so really you need to put a bit of thought into about what sort of animal you're going to take with you uh, and what sort of dogs. Some breeds are better suited and have lots of energy. 
Others, uh, I've been a great Dane owner for, for many years. I haven't had do- uh, great Danes for, for a while, but they just do not like doing, <laughs> doing long distances. They, uh, they don't like long, long walks. Uh, <laughs> You're uh, dragging them around the block. <laughs> and if you want to end up carrying a 50-odd kilo Great Dane because it's refused to move, uh, yeah, not a good dog to take on a hike. So let's move on to talking about the state and territory legislation. Now, I won't go into full detail because there is quite a lot and it does vary from state to state. So if you go to the written version of this article, and the link for that will be in the show notes, um, it will take you to uh, a number of links that are based around each state and territory in Australia. Yeah, and I think that's probably an important thing, that it does vary and it is important to make sure that you're you're following the, the right sort of guidance for the particular state that you're in. And I think as a general rule... Taking animals, domestic animals, into parks and reserves really isn't a blanket activity. So as I said, pretty much the only real blanket activity is cats aren't allowed in national parks pretty much anywhere in Australia. And I'll be, I'll take correction here if, if someone knows, uh, can provide me some information on that. But uh, I certainly couldn't find anything. And certainly, you know, pretty much anywhere you look, it says cats aren't allowed. So... Um, but as I said, there are instances where dogs are allowed in some national parks, that dogs that aren't assistance dogs. Uh, and there are instances where horses are also allowed in some national parks as well. So it really means that you need to look at the parks services um, in each of your relevant states and territory. And as I said, I've provided links to most of these uh, in the written version of this, uh, uh, this podcast. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, the tricky thing is um, when you're navigating across state borders and you're going from um, one park to another and uh, understanding what the uh, arrangements are in those border areas in particular, I think is important. If now, nothing else, COVID has taught us that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, with each of the state and territory lists, I've, talk- I've gone through and broken them down into dogs, uh, horses and cats uh, and the, 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 all the states and territories do things slightly differently. I mentioned before about camels, alpacas, um, and all the odd four-hoofed pack animals. The Northern Territory really is the only state or territory that specifically mentions those. It doesn't provide information about what you can and can't do. What it does say, if you're looking at these particular animals – call the Northern Territory Park Service and discuss with them what you want to do and they'll give you a bit more information. Yeah, yeah. So, as I said, um, the other thing with that I've, I've included through here as well is the Commonwealth National Parks, and this is Butterie in New South Wales, Kakadu National Park and Uluru in the Northern Territory. And really here, um, dogs tend to be assistance dogs only, Horses aren't specified, but um, I'm thinking it's unlikely, and cats are definitely a no-no. So uh, you really are pretty much down to assistance dogs if you're looking at domestic animals in those parks. In listening to both the interviews um, on pack animals and companion animals, um, the common theme between those interviews was there's additional additional planning uh, considerations before you start your walk, 
Uh, there's additional logistical requirements while you're on the walk uh, for uh, how things work. Uh, and there is additional care for animals on the trail. Now, taking any animal, whether it's a companion animal or a pack animal onto a hike, is going to add additional considerations for what you're doing. So whereas on a long-distance hike, I like to walk 30 to 32 kilometres a day, there's no way I'd expect to do that with a pack animal. Uh, and really, um, there are probably some considerations you need to think about whatever type of animal you have. Firstly, the specific food requirements. Um, now, donkeys, as Liz mentioned, pretty much will eat anything, uh, <laughs> although she was providing some supplements for them, uh, whereas horses need particular uh, quality of food. Um, dogs, again, you're really going to have to bring food with you um, and uh, you're going to work out the logistics before that. Uh, load carrying, uh, again, if you're working with a pack animal, you need to work out how many animals you need based on the, the equipment you need to carry. But even with dogs, dogs should be carrying a pack of some sort and talking to people that have had uh, dogs on trails before and listening to that interview is getting them to carry their own food mm, is, yeah. probably, is probably one thing that you'd probably get them to do. Yeah, I think um, we found their, their food and their first aid kit. Um, ticks. Uh, ticks and dogs typically don't go well together. So if you're hiking with a dog, you need to check them as much as you would yourself for ticks. And particularly breeds with long hair uh, take a lot more effort uh, and a lot more time to check. Poison baits. Uh, and it's not uncommon for me to be on a hike and either it's a national park or a state reserve and you see signs posted saying, uh, warning, uh, poison baits down to control foxes and wild dogs. It's not unusual for these baits to be dropped out of airplanes and helicopters. Um, and it, this basically means that if you're walking with a dog uh, and they all of a sudden see a piece of meat on the ground, it's a pretty tempting sort of thing yeah. for them to actually try and eat. So you do need to pay attention, particularly if you are walking, if you are walking through an area that's allowed dogs and there's the bait warning signs up, you've got to pay very close attention. You just can't let them go. Yeah, and I think it's not just baits um, and poisons. It's it's pretty much anything that's a bit obscure that they might find and, um, you know, want to stick their nose into. Now, one of the things that's, that is pretty common with just about all the states and territories with dogs in the national parks is they've got to be on a leash. Uh, and they do set a maximum distance on a leash, which I think from memory was about – three metres. It's not one of these leashes that allow you to have 10 metres of cord go ahead. And this does a couple of things. It allows you to keep control of the dog and see where they are and what they're doing. Um, it means that if there are other hikers there, other hikers aren't going to worry about um, what's going on uh, and worrying if the dog's going to bite them because some people don't like dogs and aren't, aren't very comfortable around dogs. Um if you come across a snake, and a lot of dogs tend to be really stupid about snakes, they tend to try and bite them or grab them, uh, which is typically where they often end up getting bitten. Um, having had friends over the years that have had dogs bitten by snakes, um, if the dogs have survived, it's a very expensive process and a very expensive foot, uh, vet bill. So And a very painful thing. And assuming that you can get the care that you need as soon as you need it, 
So yeah, I mean, it's the sort of thing, if you're looking for snakes on the trail, you need to be looking for snakes and where they are in relation to your dog, who is quite often either going to be by your side or slightly ahead of you. So you need to be careful of that. Things like foot care, um, pack animals will this often... Is poor care, poor care, hoof care. Foot, foot, foot care, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, caring for your animal's feet is particularly important if you're doing big days of hiking. Uh, now, horses quite often will be shod, uh, but if you think about things like um, dogs, you can actually get dog booties. Uh, and as, as, as was mentioned in the interview when we listened to dog care, uh, you may not have the booties on them all the time, uh, but if you're taking them across rough, sharp stones or very spiky ground... Um, Blackberry. Blackberries, yeah. Putting the boots on is probably not a bad idea. Um, and um, also um, keeping them, you know, keeping an eye on their feet as well. Um, so, you know, this is one of these things you have to add to the end of your day uh, is to check your dog's feet, check your dog for ticks, uh, make sure there's no injuries. Um, you know, so it's not just about setting up your tent at the end of the day and cooking a meal. You've got an animal you've got to feed uh, and an animal you've got to look after as well. Yeah, check, checking and checking the coat and checking the feet, the paws, I think is pretty important. The other thing is, uh, and again, this was something that came out of the two interviews, was letting the animals set the pace. Um Pack animals will often tend to set their own pace, and particularly uh, from what Liz was saying, the donkeys have their own pace, and doesn't matter how how much you try and goad them, they're going to stick to that pace no matter what you want. Is that a bit uh, like me, Tim? Is yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and dogs are going to be the same. I mean, it's no good trying to force a dog uh, to a pace that it's not comfortable with because all it's going to do is then sit down and refuse to move or not be happy. So again, in listening to our interview on dogs, um, it really was a matter of uh, you may want to cover a particular distance, uh, but if the, um, the day or the dog is just not happy or the conditions just aren't right, you may have to end up finishing your daily walk sooner than you'd actually planned. Um, so it's, it's, it's one thing for us to say uh, we want to do so many kilometres per day, but it's going to be the dog that's going to actually dictate what that is. And this is where doing some training with your dog before the trip to give you an idea of what your animal is capable of, whether it's a dog or a pack animal, is going to give you a better idea in relation to planning. Yeah, we were out walking um, the suburb a few weeks ago and there was a, a woman running up and down some hills and she had two dogs and one was obviously a younger one which was very keen to, to follow up and down the hill and the other one was an older, I think much wiser dog <laughs> who every time uh, he, he found some shade just sat himself down and waited, waited for her to come back down the hill again. <laughs> so, you know, you just, yeah, need, need to pace it and need to understand how, how your, your, your dog's going to react. And last but not least, clean up. Uh, remember that to clean up after your dogs if dogs are allowed in national parks, then it is actually a requirement to clean up their waste and take it with you. A um, bit harder if you're doing a three or four week or five week hike, uh, 
Um, but it's like anything, you don't want to leave dog waste uh, or human waste for that matter somewhere that's going to attract insects and flies or that you're going to come across. Yeah, okay, now I'm getting a picture of horse waste and mule waste and I'm not sure that we're talking about collecting all of that up, are we? No, I think that's going to be a bit hard, but they, the, the national parks that uh, do actually specify uh, that if you have dogs, that you, you need to remove their waste. We've done a lot of camping and a lot of hiking in the alpine parks uh, in New South Wales, uh, and I had one trip over Easter a couple of years ago where I counted 200 horses, and I think I probably would have walked in uh, 200 horses worth of horse poo over a period of about four days. Uh, and yeah, there was one instance of the trail where I had no choice. I just could not walk around it. So, you know, these were uh, wild horses, um, but certainly um, you know, it doesn't help and it doesn't make for a good experience. No, no. Okay. Now, other users. Um, so if we're taking dogs or animals with us on a trail, we need to consider other users on the trail. So typically if you've got a, a pack animal, you're on a multi-use trail, which is not uncommon to find cyclists and hikers. Um, if you're on a dedicated walking trail, um, you may come across assistance dogs, um, but you can also come across horses in some areas as well. Now, there are no formal laws about giving way here, but there are accepted guidelines and etiquette. Now, these revolve around courteous trail use and sharing the trail in an equitable manner. Many animals, horses in particular, view bike packers and hikers with tracking poles as being threatening. Uh, and whatever it is in a horse's mind, whenever I've been near a horse and I've had tracking poles, it seems to increase the scariness as opposed to just a normal walker. Um, and I've certainly seen instances where the recommendation is if you're passing a horse, you should pass on the downhill side uh, because it puts you at a lower height and, and puts you being as less threatening. Yeah, and there must be something in there about you looking a little bit like a praying mantis when you've got your your poles out, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> so as far as giving way concerned, uh, everybody gives way to horses. So cyclists and hikers need to give way to horses, because not so much because you know, they're, they're the most uh, maneuverable or whatever the case may be. It's more about their skittish. They If they get scared, they can either throw the rider, injure themselves, or potentially step on you as well. So it's just better to give them a bit of space, step off the trail if there is space, and yep. let them go past. From there, cyclists need to give way to hikers um, because in most cases, unless it's a dedicated hiking trail or dedicated cycling trail, uh, hikers have right away. And I have had instances on trails where hikers have had right away but it's been a shared trail where there's been uh, mountain bikers on it and I've come across a group of eight or nine cyclists coming the other way yeah. and, I'm, and I'm not going to make eight or nine cyclists pull off the trail uh, and wait until I walk slowly past to let them continue. It's just, it's just a bit of common sense for me to walk off. They'll get by reasonably quickly and then you continue on without uh, the way you are going. Yeah, and sometimes all it takes is for you to take a, a, a bit of a step back and, and stop for a moment, wait until you pass and then continue on. But, you know, I'm with you um, that 
you know, my tendency is also to let them pass rather than to expect them to do anything, which sort of, you know, um, I guess contributes to the confusion a little bit. Um, but, yeah, I, I just think it's an easier thing. And particularly uh, if I'm going downhill and they're going uphill, I figured, you know, that's kind of fair. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so just to finish off, hiking with animals, as we mentioned, is far less common in Australia than it is in the USA, but it is something that, that I've, I've noticed an increase on over the last five to ten years. Um, I think people are, the equipment is becoming more available, people are looking at more alternatives, um, and people are looking at, um, you know, and now we do have dedicated trails like the Bicentennial National Trail, which allows horses. Um, you know, there are other shorter horse trails around, but that's the, the one that takes you almost, you know, from virtually um, Victoria all the way through to uh, to Queensland. You know, it's 5,000-odd kilometres. Uh, and, you know, if you're into horses um, and feel like a, a trip of a 5,000-odd kilometres uh, or, or pieces of, it's a good trail to go through and Yeah, do. and I think what people want to do is share their experiences um, you know, with with their best friend, and sometimes their best friend is a companion animal. Now, as we said, taking an animal on a hike, whether it's a pack animal or a companion animal, does have plenty of advantages. You know, it does provide companionship. It does help you with gear carrying capabilities. Um, it does provide a bit of additional speed, if particularly if you happen to be um, riding as opposed to walking. Um, but it also has additional considerations. Uh, and these in, do include the additional daily work in animal husbandry and feeding and caring for your animal. And I, w- I would say that, you know, if if you love love your companion animal to the extent that you want to take them with you, then you need to put the effort into understanding what exactly they'll need along the way and not putting them in harm's way just because you've got a bit of a you know, a thing about how great this would be. It may not be that great for them. So make, make it a good experience for you and a good experience for them as well. So I think what it comes down to is if whether you need to sort of work through the pros and cons of having a companion animal or a pack animal, work out whether from your perspective uh, the pros outweigh the cons uh, and whether you feel like doing the additional work is something that you really want to want to do and that will hopefully help you decide whether you do want to take a companion animal or a pack animal with you. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed. Bye for now. And bye from me.